Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. The current growth of the population ages 65 and older, mostly what we call the baby boom generation, is considered unprecedented in U.S. history. According to the Population Reference Bureau, the number of Americans aged 65 and older is projected to nearly double from 52 million in 2018 to 95 million by 2060. Older Americans are living longer, too. The average U.S. life expectancy increased in the past few decades from 68 years in 1950 to 79 years in 2017. Those numbers offer some challenges. We expect over the next decade to see a 50% increase in the number of Americans ages 65 and older requiring nursing home care. And the number of Americans facing Alzheimer's are also on the rise, expecting to more than double to 13.8 million by 2050. These demographics have a real impact, especially for those of us in the sandwich generation. The sandwich generation is exactly what it sounds like. Adults who are supporting or caring for another adult, often a parent, while taking care of children. According to a 2013 Pew Foundation study, nearly half of adults in their 40s and 50s have a parent aged 65 or older and are either raising a young child or financially supporting a grown child. About one in seven middle-aged adults are providing financial support to both an aging parent and a child. This dynamic, raising a child while you're helping to make decisions about your own parents, is something that a lot of folks are struggling with. And it's something that I thought we should talk about. So, as I often do, I brought in an expert to walk us through it all. Victor Medina is a nationally recognized estate planning and elder law attorney, focusing on traditional estate planning, asset protection, retirement distribution, and proactive income tax planning. Victor is the founder of Medina Law Group and brings a family-centered approach to planning with a focus on practical solutions for families and high net worth individuals. He is the past president of the American Association of Trust, Estate, and Elder Law Attorneys and is a frequent speaker to public and private groups on the issues of estate planning, elder law, asset protection, and retirement planning. Thank you, Victor, for being on the show. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So one of the things that I've talked about, I kind of threw out some statistics early about what this, the picture of older Americans looks like and sandwich generations. But when I was researching, one of the things that is interesting is while this is a problem that affects everyone, I was really surprised to learn that more affluent adults, those with annual household incomes of $100,000 or more, are more likely than less affluent adults to be in this sandwich generation, like just statistically, which is kind of interesting. So among those with incomes of $100,000 or more, 43% have a living parent age 65 or older and a dependent child. And by comparison, those making between 30 and 100,000, they're only 25% of folks in that situation. And then those making less than 30,000, it's 17%. So one of the things I was struck by is that this is not only a generational issue, but it's a financial uh, issue, right? How do you see these kinds of arrangements impacting finances and what kinds of things should people be looking at? 
Yeah, there, there, I think that it comes at it from probably two or three different perspectives in terms of how it affects the finances. The first one is obviously the person who is the older adult, the parent, their finances get called into question because their entire structure of the way they've been living is all upside down. They could have been independent at one point in time, and now they are codependent in some fashion. And so their finances are starting to get commingled with their kids' finances about even if they still have capacity, are they contributing to the utilities or how are they earning their keep or something along those lines. But when we look at the sandwich generation themselves, there is a trajectory that is so almost romantic in its setup, which is that you are raised by your parent, you become a parent yourself, you raise your children, and then there's this period of almost independence and freedom once you've launched them. And the sandwich generation, by definition, doesn't have that. They are now having to continue to support what is their obligation as a parent to their kids, but now impute onto some of that caring for their parent as well and the financial impact that that brings with it. And then you start to kind of wrap that up with the emotional component of not wanting to pay for additional care. In other mm -hmm. words, they feel an emotional commitment to be the primary caregiver if they have gone ahead and taken on that responsibility and paying for some help is almost failure. And so if we set aside the emotional calculation of whether or not you should be doing that, the financial calculation is, of course, that the resources and the way they're being allocated is rather than using some of the parents' money or having a smooth trajectory in terms of care that they're receiving, what they're getting is paying nothing for a very long time until mm -hmm. some point in time, something catastrophic happens. And now they have to kind of figure out their parents' finances and getting, you know, what are nursing level care that, that at least in the Northeast are between ten dollars and $12,000 a month. Right. That's actually one of the things I found most interesting is, um, and, and, you know, I, I do similar lines of work, is that I think that we all know academically that there are going to be costs associated with getting older. I think you don't realize how much it's going to be until you're there. So I often have, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, whether it's, it's Medicaid planning or, or, or Medicare planning or, or estate planning or whatever. And you feel like if you have a healthy nest egg, so let's say, I'm just going to throw out some numbers. Let's say you have, as, as a, an older adult, you have $250,000 in savings and you're, you're drawing a pension and whatever. You feel like a quarter of a million dollars should be something that you could live off comfortably if your house is paid off and you're still getting a pension. And until you hear those numbers, like you mentioned, because ten to twelve thousand a month, that drains that two fifty in two years. And oftentimes, especially folks who are um, particularly have challenges like dementia or Alzheimer's, it's going to be more than those numbers. Because if you can find a facility that will accept someone who has those challenges, they tend to require more dedicated care and the numbers go up. So I do think it's something that people struggle with because, again, academically, we all know if you go, if you get older and you have to go into a nursing home situation, or if you require in-home care, there's a cost associated with that. But I don't think that people understand how big those numbers are and how quickly it can drain someone, especially when we start talking about like middle class Americans, because that's really, I think, where we see a lot of the impact, because those are folks who are in a situation where they might not qualify, at least initially, for government aid. 
but they don't have the resources necessarily to pay for a long-term care facility. So what kinds of advice do you, would you give people? And I'm actually going to kind of bifurcate the question. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody who finds themselves in that situation today? And then the second question is, if someone is listening right now and they're anticipating, because that's obviously the best time to be thinking about it, right? When you're not in the moment, if someone's looking down the line, what should they do? So, so again, what, what would you recommend? And I, and I understand that obviously there's a lot of factors at play. So you can't say this is a one size fits all, but what kind of general advice would you give to someone who's like a middle-class family looking at this now? And then what would you say to someone who's looking at this prospectively? So it's very difficult for people to admit that seeking help was something they should have done before. And so you really get into a crisis moment. As you mentioned, you start writing checks and you write out the words $12,000. In the first one, there's $250,000 in the account. You're like, well, I can kind of handle this, I suppose. But by the second or third month, and that check is still having to go out, it gets very real very quickly. So for the person that is in crisis, What I would highlight for them is that with good planning, there's almost always a better option than the one that you're living through now. We just have to seek that help. And so people that are elder law attorneys and are experienced will look at that and, well, first of all, not judge you, just deal with you the way that you came. Right, right. But will look at you in a crisis and say, there's a way of navigating this. Uh, The imagery that I use is, look, a couple of the engines on this plane are out. What you're bringing us into is to make sure you don't explode on impact. And that's our goal. If we walk away from this, that's a win overall. Right. And so seeking the help, I think, is, is and remembering that there's going to be a plan. There's no sense of hopelessness or as though there's nothing that can be done. And those are the people that are facing it directly. When do I look at people that are looking at it uh, preventatively as a pre-crisis matter I tell them it's a, it's a simple mental calculation. Uh, you're going to go through life playing a little bit of roulette, betting on either black or on red. If you buy um, black, what you're saying is essentially, I plan never to get ill, and I plan never to need long-term care. And if I'm right, it's great. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong, I got to deal with the thing that the person in crisis is dealing with, and there are all these implications of that. The other way to look at it is, okay, I'm going to bet on red and I'm going to plan to need long-term care. And if I'm right, I'll get a benefit from having done that planning. So in either scenario, if you're right about your bet, it's great. What we have to do is quantify what happens if we're wrong. Because if you bet on needing long-term care and you don't need it, you probably paid for some professional services, but you're happy that you don't need the long-term care. It worked out okay for you. You know, whereas the other way around, if you plan not to need it and uh, you eventually do need it, now that's when we're stroking out those checks for 12 grand and consuming the nest egg uh, sooner rather than later, and uh, faster, excuse me, than we anticipated. And what I would say is that when we start to look at the difference between planning ahead of time or planning in crisis, normally, and with advanced planning, you can almost double what you can protect and save. And that's not an inheritance savings. At least we don't position it that way when we talk to our clients. It's really about flexibility and choice because if you just go down the path of spending your money as you need it, you tend to foreclose opportunities to have different kinds of care that you might benefit from. Most people want to age in place. Well, most Medicaid 
programs in the various states will allow for some form of community-based care, like a home health care aide coming into your home to provide it. That's the kind of care that they're wanting. And so if we can stretch out the dollar, then they're getting the kind of care that they want. Or in another scenario, if they are married, well, unfortunately, the way the rules work for qualifying for government programs is they require not only the sick person to get poor, but they require their spouse to get poor too. And that, that person's only sin was that they married you for 40 years and stay <laughs> right. married, right? right? So there's nothing fair about that. But if we're able to protect assets, we can use those protected assets to maintain quality of life for the healthy spouse so that that illness doesn't impact their day-to-day living you know, uh, significantly in the way that we would if we just spent it down. So doing the preventative planning, doing it ahead of time is really about keeping a number of doors open that allows us to kind of hold all 52 cards in our hand and play them down as we choose rather than having them forced to be played by someone else. And I do think the home health care, in-person home health care, what that you brought up that I think that's so important that people understand that that's available and it's also available with certain kinds of services because I do think that the fear that kind of paralyzes a lot of people in, ter- in terms of talking about this and having this conversation is that they don't want to talk about going into a nursing home because when you talk about choice, a lot of people think that that's your only choice yes. and it's not. There are options that are available. There's nobody that comes into my office with their hand held high saying, I heard you can get me into a nursing home on Medicaid. <laughs> you know, right. I'd like to do that as fast as possible. Right. You know, and so you're right that there's a sort of a stigma associated with A, qualifying for Medicaid, and B, that that's, those services are available in what they used to call the old folks' home, because that, in fact, was you know, the place that you were put to pasture right before you died. Mm-hmm. And because the programs are more expansive than that, that they cover home health care services, that they cover services in an assisted living facility, for those veterans that would otherwise qualify for aid and attendance, which is a similar program, we both know this, but for anybody else that's listening, that there's an additional program, well, those monies can be spent essentially anywhere around long-term care. So planning to navigate eligibility for those and being able to mix and match is really about getting the kind of care that you want where you want it, rather than having to kind of go with the least desirable solution because you just kind of went with the default all the way and then this you're stuck and this is the only thing that you've got left, which is what they're trying to avoid. So that preventative planning actually allows us to take advantage of the kinds of things that people want rather than being only left with the things that they don't. Right. And it's also, I think, true in terms of facilities. It's uh, So I've talked about on social, my oldest daughter recently went away to college and she started thinking about that years in advance. And we started thinking about that years in advance and, you know, making lists and what does she want and what, you know, where does she want to be geographically and like all of these things together so that she could figure out where she wanted to be. And I I'm, was struck by that a lot because I work with a lot of families and often the amount of planning that you, you, you made the, the comment that nobody comes in and, you know, raises their hand and says, you know, I want to go into a, a home. But a lot of time when that decision comes, there's been no research. There's no. not people, not only do they not know the costs, but they don't know how you can get in. Some places have wait lists. Um, we have a, where I used to practice. There was a very desirable place that had a two-year wait list to get in. And, you know, people were like, but my mom needs to get in now. Well then you should have started thinking about this 
earlier and I know, you know, we talk about judging and, you know, you don't want to be judgmental, obviously, but it is something in a, on a cautionary note that you should tell people, like, it's important to start planning and, and much the same way that when you know that you might be going to college, you may, you may be um, making a move, you start planning for the money, for the geography, for everything. You should keep that same mindset when you're looking at what kind of facility, if a facility is what you're looking at. And I think it's a really strong analogy, Kelly, because there are facilities that sort of major in things that are better for some people than not. And mm -hmm. so you'll have places that are better with certain kinds of dementia diagnosis and the way yes. that they've got adult daycare or lockdown units for the severity of it. Or you have people that have mobility issues or you have people that are, their census is older or younger. And so you'll kind of know in, like if you went to college, this is more of a J. Crew place than it is an urban outfitters kind of place. And you're going to find your people there in mm -hmm. a different way. And so the way census changes you know, you don't want to be stuck with a place that's got all 90-year-olds if you're 75 and the same thing vice versa. Right. And so I think that doing that examination ahead of time is fine. I tell you, the only thing that I hear that is sort of relevant for this sandwich generation discussion as a promise that they're forced to make is never put me in a home. Mm -hmm. That comes up too often. They mom made me promise to never put her in a home. Yes. And it's such an unfair thing to be held to because, A, you cannot control what care you require, and you may actually be doing the person a disservice by not giving them the, the level of care that they want, not only to them, but now you think about the impact to the caregiver and whether or not they have the ability to maintain some healthy relationships and healthy living on their own because of what they're being forced to sacrifice to kind of honor this unfair promise in the first place. Whereas if we took the planning ahead of time and we say, well, look, there are all kinds of care that is available. You've got home health care. You've got people that are companions. You've got people that are registered nurses. You have different sort of spectrum of care. How do we want to navigate this? What's the plan look like? Because we're going to go out into a field and there are landmines there and we don't want to step on a landmine and we want to get kind of cleanly across the field. So what are we right. going to do? What's the plan going to be? And the further that you can think ahead about that and then with more detail and the, with more planning around, well, hypothetical, if this was supposed to happen, what would you do? Would you go left? Did you go right here? Okay, good. All right. Does our plan allow for that? Do we have that kind of flexibility? Do we have that time or we have that kind of care condition or we're in that neighborhood where we have the ability to make a plan that is portable right now that you're with child A? But if these things happen, you might want to relocate near child B. And how do we do that? So the more forethought that we can put into the plan, more detailed, the more expansive that we can make it, the better your options are going to be. And that's the whole purpose of doing the planning is to have, there's that old phrase that, you know, planning is essential, but all plans are useless because we will need some dynamic responses to what's going on. But you have to go through the planning process to understand ah, I have a response for this rather than I have no response for this. Right. And actually, one of the things that when you were talking about the, the promise, so I get this a lot too, right? The, the don't put me in a home. I think how that especially impacts the sandwich generation, I have in situations or had clients who've been in situations where keeping the older parent at home is actually dangerous for the younger children. And you've put a, you've put a, a parent and a child in the position of, I mean, when, when instance, we had, um, uh, there was an older gentleman who had severe dementia, 
and he would occasionally throw furniture when he was upset. There were, there were children in the house, you know? And so you're putting a, by, by saying, don't put me in a home ever, you're putting the, the, your child and then uh, the parent of another child in a position where you're asking them to choose between honoring a, uh, a promise to a parent and protecting their children. And that is, it's really not only like we talk about the money, but you know, that's emotionally just can be devastating for families. You know, and I authored a book recently called Empowering Women in Retirement, because, you know, one of the things that I was noticing is that statistically talk about the numbers that are out there. First of all, the vast majority of women are going to die single. The vast majority of men are going to die married and first. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the care journey that happens, what is typical is that a woman who is a wife to a man will end up sacrificing a lot of their health as the caregiver for the one that's in there. The statistics that I've put in, uh, in the book and other places is, look, one in every four men were going to need long-term care at some point in time, and one out of every two women. And before the men start celebrating that they're somehow less likely <laughs> to need care, it's because she took care of you, and then she's alone because you die. And so when we think about how to navigate this, uh, we have men often outweighing and being bigger than the women that they're married to. And so the caregiving requirements, if they're being forced not to bring somebody in or to think about a facility, put their own health at risk. Or if right. you look at the sandwich generation, the same thing. I mean, if it's typically a daughter that's taking care of their parent for what they're doing, they're not in a great position to be moving around a 250 pound you know, person who's fallen and needs to get up or needs to get in and out of the shower. And by the way, some people don't want that relationship in the way that it's in there, that that form of caregiving is not the kind of relationship that they want to create memories around as they're in this sort of last kind of leg of what's going on. And so you think about all of those things impacted. And, and I think that the salient point is be willing to seek and use help earlier than you think you need it, because Absolutely. that will elongate the ramp down of what this person's journey is going to be like. You will avoid falling off a cliff and you will make the journey itself a little bit more bearable if you, from a mindset perspective, say, I'm willing to go seek out and use the help that's available kind of at the first notice that I think that, that it's, uh, you know, it would be helpful. Right. And when you talk about, uh, you know, especially like children caring for older parents, especially in home care, um, when, when you're doing that and, and you're not a qualified nursing professional, but you're, you're doing it on your own. Um, there was actually a New York Times survey, those caring for both children and older parents. And they estimate that the person doing the caregiving loses more than $10,000 because they have to do things like reduce working hours, increase expenses, or leave a job because of the responsibility. And, um, and I saw that personally. My mom she was one of eight, but she was the youngest daughter and, uh, and felt, I think, the burden of being the one who was supposed to take care of her mother. And my mom, um, so my grandmother had, had breast cancer, which spread to her lungs. And my mom took care of my grandmother. My grandmother wanted to die at home. So she had hospice care, but it was in home. But that meant that there wasn't someone there at other times when the hospice nurses weren't there. So we slept as kids. We slept at my grandmother's house. And my mom often did as well. And my mom, it was a 30-minute drive to and from her 
mother's house, which she did every day for at least six months, I would say, probably closer to a year. And, um, and we were there all of the time. I was, I, I was in the room when my grandmother died. I was 12 years old. Um, my mom had to bring us along. She couldn't leave us 30 minutes away by ourselves. My brother was nine. Um, you know, it's, I think people don't always think about the extras, you know, like again, you, my mom, my mom wanted to honor her mom's wishes to not die in a hospital. I don't think that my grandmother could have lived with us just because of we lived, uh, my, my grandmother would say we lived in the boonies. <laughs> we lived in the woods and she was in the, the big city of Wilmington, North Carolina, but she, you know, she wanted to be in that house. And it's funny because my mom and I've had discussions about, you know, my mom coming to live with us because I've, I've, I would love for my mom to come live with us when the time, uh, if the time comes where that was a requirement, but it would be hard for me to take care of her because she's so far away. Um, and I do think, you know, when we talk about taking care of family and family dynamics, not only was it hard on my mom, but my mom at least was in a position where she was just a half an hour away. Families today are so much more global. So I live, so my parents still live in near Wilmington, North Carolina. I live in Pennsylvania. That's not the same drive, right? So I think that that's also something that people struggle with in advance is when I mentioned um, geography earlier, when we were talking about like uh, nursing facilities, like where does the parent ultimately want to be and where do you want to be? Do you move to, you know, Florida to be with your parents or do they move to you or do, does none of those things happen? And I do think that that's tough. And so I kind of have two questions, like one, how do you cancel someone, cancel someone um, who's in that situation where there's a lot of geography? And two, and I think this is a question that I think a lot of listeners is going to have, are going to have, is let's say there's a, uh, we'll, we'll use New Jersey because I know you're in Jersey. So let's say there's a Jersey, Florida trek, right? Where does the planning happen? Like if I'm yeah. looking for an attorney, where do I go? Yeah, I like that question or those two questions. I think the answer is very similar in terms of the counseling, which is, to think a little bit broader than what your initial plan is. It's the same kind of counseling that I give people that are looking at continuing care retirement communities, which tend to be these facilities where you can do the entire journey of long-term care at one stay for a certain kind of price. And I said, well, that, that's okay that that's your plan for right now, but think a little broader than that because you may have a care issue that goes beyond what they can provide. And so similarly, people that are retired in Florida and doing planning there need to consider where their kids live as part of the planning consideration, because there are a lot of plans that I review that were drafted in Florida and are perfect for Florida plans, but mm -hmm. fail for New Jersey. And uh, there, uh, people need to understand that this planning is state-specific. So yes. because most of the uh, programs that people plan for are around Medicaid, and because Medicaid is a joint federal and state program, because they both contribute money, the states get to write the rules a little bit, um, and they are different from state to state. And so what we do in New Jersey, and it just happens to be a lucky coincidence, is that because New Jersey, and to a certain extent Pennsylvania, are two of the harder states that you can do planning in. In other words, they are more restrictive in the options that you can use as part of your strategies. It means that they're a little bit more transferable. They are sort of the, well, I can't, I'm going to misquote it, but it's the O positive, O negative of uh, planning. They are ones that you can take other places. 
where places that might have a little bit more aggressive strategies available tend not to work here. And what we've seen, I suppose more often than the other way around, is that people go from the Northeast to a retirement zone for retirement and then back for their long-term care needs. Well, those retirement zones have strong lobbies for an older population that is part of the reason why they can do more aggressive strategies. We're up here, why would we waste those lobbying dollars? And so as a consequence, our planning is a little bit more strict. And so I've said to people, it's really find the most restrictive area that you could potentially go to and then do the planning there. Because most of this planning, if it's there, can be transferable. There's a lot of federal elements to it, and that makes it also transferable. So I didn't want to make a, look, there are very few reasons why New Jersey can pitch itself as the place to be, as a home (laughs) of lots of different things. But we will use this one as one of those reasons, because we're going to try to find that kind of, that plan. Mm-hmm. that will allow you to use it in other places. But to your specific question, think broader about where those places can be. Because too often we think too narrowly or to, to use some kind of behavioral economics theory behind it. People have a lot of confirmation bias on what is around them and this proximity thing that's going on. So they'll make plans as though their known universe is sort of where they're at. And it just... it. It can't be where we place all of our bets. We need to diversify that a little bit in terms of our strategies because we can't necessarily predict. And and I do the same thing even within the facilities that people are looking at locally. So you could select a facility here. And I said, that's good. But here's the reason why we're going to have some rainy day funds set aside for you because corporate ownership can change. That great social worker that makes the programs fantastic takes a job down the road someplace. And so you need hedges, you need contingency plans, because you don't get to control necessarily that all the variables stay as constants at the time that you make the decision. Right. And so when we were talking about, uh, you know, kind of locality and geography, and I mentioned like my mom going to see, you know, her mom all of the time, uh, you know, my mom, my mom brought food, my mom did the shopping. My mom did stuff for her mom. Sometimes that was my mom's money. Sometimes that was her mom's money. Can we talk about like commingling just for a second? And, and, and how do you, you know, how do you have those conversations? Cause it's hard, right? You don't want to say to your mom, I picked up some cereal at the store. It was $2 and 49 cents. I would like to be reimbursed, please. Right. So that gets, it gets hard. So how do you talk about commingling with, with the parent? Yeah, it's, it's, it is one. And we're going to try not to get lost in the weeds to so the listenership. Don't check out off of this. But sure. what we normally say is it is, first of all, important to keep things separate. And if you have a hard time engaging in that discussion, one of the things that we provide as cover for you having that discussion is you'll make my job a lot harder in the future if we don't keep things square now. Because the only time that we figure out whether or not we screwed up our record keeping is, is, is within a five-year span of paperwork from the time that you need to apply for benefits. And since mm-hmm. we can't predict when that's going to be, why don't we just keep things kind of clear right now? And so keeping those things separate is, is, is really important. And I think that one of the best mechanisms that we have these days is the credit card for that. It's fantastic. We just use the card and it lines up all of what these expenses are. 
And at the end of the day, you can just pay off what that credit card is. You just use that card for the things that are specific. You can go to the checkout counter and say, okay, this is mom stuff. Use this card. Okay, now ring me out on these. And this is the other card. And so you can keep those um, pretty there. So you're not kind of using cash around that. And you don't have to keep a spreadsheet around it. The record is the record. And that makes it easier. Um, when we look at the actual sort of uh, fairness of that, obviously it's dependent on the economic positions of both of those people. I have clients who their parents are far more well-off than the kids. And even though they're imposing by living with them, they understand they've got to carry some of that financial load. We have to kind of navigate how are they going to do that and keep mm -hmm. their noses clean for potentially applying for benefits later. And sometimes it's the other way around. There's some level of materiality uh, in terms of like the dollar amount where this stuff doesn't matter. And I know that it's dangerous to sort of give specific advice, but I would tell you that in my experience in New Jersey, cash that's withdrawn on a monthly basis of less than 500 bucks or so is usually looked over. It's just too problematic to try to chase every dime off of that. And so people ask me, well, what kind of, where's, where's my safes on? I said, look, if you're pulling out about $500 cash, and that is just sort of our, our gray area of, of money that's being moved around, probably going to be okay in the future. I won't guarantee it because the rules say that any dime counts against you. But for the most matter, you've got Medicaid workers that are looking over five years of financial statements. Sometimes all they do is scan down to see if there are four digits and they pay attention to stuff that's four digits and they ignore the stuff that's three digits. So mm -hmm. there's some wiggle room around that. But don't be afraid to engage in some of this record keeping because it is important if you need to go through the formal application process for government benefits later, this is stuff that you've got to present to a third party whose job it is, is to deny you benefits for things <laughs> just like not having good records. So right. it's a lot easier to do it right from the beginning, get into a good habit around that, even though it feels strange and weird. Wait, are we budgeting because you're my parent and I'm your child and it's the other way? Or wait, that's not right. You know, it, it just, uh, it can be awkward. But mm -hmm. the sooner you get over the awkwardness, the better you're going to be in the future. What about powers of attorney? I know those can be obviously really helpful, but they can also be problematic. So what would you say in terms of like when we talk about record keeping and finances, like yeah. do you have any words of advice as to should a child be the power of attorney? Like what kind of record should they keep? Well, I look over my list of uh, webinars that I've done, and, and apparently I have a 60-minute worth of an answer of powers of attorney, but we'll keep <laughs> it a little shorter yeah. for here. And I would say it breaks down into two different areas of analysis for it. Let's take a look first at the substantive document itself. What is the power of attorney? I usually caution people that this is not a ubiquitous or sort of interchangeable document, that there is some art that goes behind that. First thing you can do is just look at its length. If you have a three or five page version of that, you probably don't have one that's powerful enough for what you need in the future. So we want to look at the breadth of that because there are other things that inform on whether or not this is a good power of attorney. How recently was it uh, signed? Those types of things. And that's just about the four corners of the document and how many pages it is and what's inside of it. Right. When we get to the practical of the counseling around that, what I say to uh, my parents who come and see me who want to name their child, so the parents are okay, I say, look, Here's the thing. Your kids look like they're getting along right now because you're alive and well, right. and you are a break on them acting dumb. But when something happens to you, all of the pent-up frustration that you don't see is going to come out. And so what you want to do is not place the person that you're asking to help you 
in a position that makes it difficult for them to defend what they're doing. Now, we'll certainly guide them to make sure that they're in a defensible position, but we don't want to set them up for failure. So we start to think about the way that we're going to structure this. Maybe you name two people, maybe you name two people and they have independent authority to act. So either of them can take the lead at a particular time. So there's some practical uh, sort of advice that goes around that. Sometimes we name four or five people just so we don't insult numbers fours and five. Will we ever see them? Nah, they're never going to show up, but at least they're in the document. And sometimes that's enough to say mom and dad still loved me and I don't have to cause problems later. When we talk to the kids about using these documents, we echo sort of a similar sentiment to say, our job here is to make sure that if somebody gets a little itchy about what you're doing, you have a good defense to what you have been doing. We go back to the record keeping. We go back to the decisions about people's best interests. But we also look at the document itself that gives the person the latitude to be doing things that are important. And we kind of document why that's the case and what we're doing that looks like it's in conformity or is in conformity of what is in the client's best interest. So there's all of these things that you can do ahead of time because the worst position to be in is either to have no documentation or to have weak documentation with no communication amongst the family about what's going on. And those are what we, uh, I think the technical term is messy cases. We don't <laughs> like messy cases in sure. our office, so we don't see a ton of those. But we try to counsel ahead of time when we can by saying, kind of think this stuff through. How many layers deep? What kind of breadth of provisions do we want in there? What kind of powers do we want? In? And at the end of the day, what are your desires? Because my experience, Kelly, is that people tend to conform their behavior to expectations. The mm -hmm. failure is that we don't communicate the expectations. Maybe it's weird to talk about being dead or disabled or talk about what happens going on with our money. We're not really comfortable talking about how much we have or where it is. And I said, well, you can do that. And I suppose you can serve that particular, you know, you can serve that particular needs to not have that stuff be disclosed. Just be aware that you're feeding a monster sometime in the future. Yes. I guess the best part is that you're going to be dead or incapacitated. So you may never see that monster kind of uh, rear its ugly head. But if you'd like to avoid the monster, if the purpose of this planning is to make life easier for the people that you leave behind, then one of the things you have to consider is how you do some work that is outside of the paper that's being produced to make their job easier and listen to some of the counsel that will be given you on how to do that. Right. And that's, uh, that's great advice. So I have sort of the flip side of that then. So we've spent, um, I don't know, 40 minutes or so talking about the importance of planning and what can happen if you don't plan. And you've, you've just spoken to, you know, how to tell the client that you need to plan. But what if you're the adult child? So, and I've had this conversation with my own parents. It's so hard. I talk to my dad and I find myself saying over and over like, dad, I do this for a living. Like you can, <laughs> you can talk to me about this, I promise. Um, right. And it's still hard, right? Because parents don't, they don't like to give up control. They don't want to talk about the future sometimes. So you've just said to the, to the client, this is what you should do. What if you're talking to the adult child who needs to convince, and if you could see me, I have air quotes, convince yeah, their sure. parent that now is the time. Like what is kind of like for, for our listeners, like sort of as a, a, a good wrap up, like how do you convince your parent that this is important and it's timely? Even, especially is, if the parent is still healthy, right? I was going to say, and it is the $100,000 question because I wish there was some form of a magic sort of 
Trump Uno card that we could throw it out and be like, all right, this is draw four, and I get to pick the color going <laughs> forward. But it doesn't work that way. And right. I will tell you that in my experience along the spectrum of people where it's successful, when it's successful, it's because we call on the other-centered nature of the parent that was dormant or unsaid. And so if, the more we frame it as a uh, thing that they are doing uh, as a selfish matter, look, you really ought to do this for yourself, Dad, because don't you understand, this could be going on, and these are the things on there. They'll kind of get, there's some ego, there is some bravado, there is some unwillingness to face it, there's some, this is my problem to handle, not yours. And so you, the more that we implore the selfish component of it, something they ought to be doing themselves, the more resistance I've encountered. Uh, And this is just experiential. So what I would say is that the more that we have called on their selfless nature, and sometimes it's not um, to the person that's making the ask because that's not the dynamic. So it's not to the person that is going to get the power of attorney because don't you understand that this is going to help me? Sometimes that's not the play. No, dad, you don't understand. This helps mom off of it, right? right? Oh, Oh, it helps mom. Oh, well, I can put my ego aside because you know what? I probably haven't served mom all that well in all these years. I mean, that may at least make this the last best effort that I've had. And then the same thing being with other siblings. Yeah, this is something that's going to help us all and kind of deflecting across yourself because I think the more you make it positional, it's going to help you or it's going to help me. And I have to make a decision whether you or me is the right person to help. And we have a villain that's on the outside or somebody that is a damsel that's worth rescuing over on the outside of that the better play it's had. And it won't work in all cases because guess what? There's just some people that are so hard-headed and so selfish, it doesn't matter what you're going to ask of them, they ain't going to do it. Right. Got it. But if you're going to find success, some success in some times where you don't normally find them, then I would say that imploring sort of the selfless nature, the other-centered nature, and finding the right foil for the discussion is one of the ways that you can get some traction. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. I may um, have to have you back because I think this is definitely more than a, you know, a one-time conversation. I think a lot of people still, they're, they're going to hear it. They're going to think I need to do it. So maybe we can uh, talk next step some point. But if they have questions after, after this now and they want to find you, maybe hire you, how do they find you on the web? Well, one of the best ways to find me is you can certainly go to our website for the law firm, which is medinalawgroup.com. That's spelled M-E-D-I-N-A, lawgroup.com. But in addition to that, we have a number of free resources that are available. So for about two years, I hosted a radio show and a podcast called Make It Last. It's actually the name of the series of books that I've produced. And that's available, whether it's on Apple iTunes or podcasts or Spotify Basically, anywhere where uh, podcasts are found, you can search for Make It Last with Victor Medina, and you'll find about 120 or so episodes that cover topics like this, as well as everything else that we do. So if you'd like an introduction to more information about that, you can certainly um, seek out the resource in terms of those audio or even the written books. And if you want to contact us directly, feel free to find us on the web at Medina Law Group and just fill out the contact form. We'd see if there's something we can do to help you. Awesome. And also for folks listening, I will put all of this information in the show notes. So if you are on Apple or Google or Spotify or wherever you're watching um, or listening, you can just go to the show notes and I'll have those links for you. Thanks again, Victor. This is really helpful. I think a lot of people uh, will at least know what the steps they need to take are and hopefully we can, uh, can help some families out of some, some tough jams. It's great being on and thanks so much for having me. Thanks. And that will do it for this episode. 
You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Tax Girl, and you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.